Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. And I want to welcome you all today to our October Conservative Women's Network Luncheon. I want to give a special thank you to the Heritage Foundation, today represented up here by Melanie Ezreal, who is in research at the Heritage. We, uh, we've had this good partnership on Conservative Women's Network for more than 20 years now, and we love working with the Heritage Foundation. I'm pleased to introduce today's speaker, Jennifer Zeng. Jennifer has a powerful story about the evils of socialism and communism, and we're honored to have her with us today. Now, when I speak of China in this introduction, I'm referring to communist China, the big China, not Taiwan, which I would call free China. In this time, uh, what Victor David Hansen described in his column yesterday as, quote, gross abuses of human rights against Chinese religious minorities and political dissidents, unquote. The distinction between free and communist China is quite important. Jennifer fled China in 2001 for Australia. She wrote a book about her experiences and eventually settled here in the United States. There's also a powerful documentary about her life with many secret photos and videos from inside Chinese prisons and labor camps that we got a copy of and watched in our office this week with horror. She's also a managing editor now of Epic Times newspaper. She was born in Sichuan province in China in 1966. She was arrested four times and held as a prisoner of conscience in a labor camp where she was physically and mentally abused and subjected to brainwashing, attempted brainwashing, and electric shock treatment. She graduated from Beijing University in 1991 with a master's degree in science. She was a wife and a mother. But because she followed a spiritual practice called Falun Gong, her life in China was shattered. The Communist Party instituted a crackdown, arrested her, and demanded that she recant her beliefs. After twice being held at a detention center and refusing, she was sentenced to re-education through forced labor. Her so-called enlightenment, that's in quotes, took the form of beatings, torture with electric prods, starvation, sleep deprivation, and forced labor. She was compelled to knit for days at a time, her hands bleeding to produce goods for sale in the U.S., Many with her died under the harsh conditions. Jennifer was lucky. Millions of others remained deprived of their freedom of speech and assembly and freedom to believe as they choose 
by the oppressive Chinese government. Jennifer's book, Witnessing History, One Chinese Woman's Fight for Freedom, and the documentary about her life, Free China, The Courage to Believe, are testaments to her ordeal and to many others who still suffer in China as she did. At this time in our history of the world, when communist China is celebrating its 70th anniversary, and when we see Taiwan threatened and Hong Kong residents resisting communist China's oppression, hearing her story means all the more. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer Zinn. Thank you for that, that introduction. And uh, I'll begin in the middle of the night in, on April 13, 2000. While I was fast asleep at my home, I suddenly heard loud bangs at on the door, boom, boom, boom. Before I could figure out what had happened, a vicious-looking police officer was already in my home. He grabbed me with force and took me to the police station. Later, I asked, why? Why was I arrested while asleep at my home? And you guess what's the reply? Because of your thought. Without any trial, I was sent to a forced labor camp. I still remember the big sign of Beijing female labor camp. It felt like entering right into hell. From the very first moment, we were forced to squat like this with our hands putting behind our heads, our heads lowered, looking at our feet motionlessly under the baking sun for 15 hours. No matter anyone couldn't endure it and fainted, electric batons were immediately applied on her so that she could be revived and continue the squatting. On the second day in the camp, two police officers dragged me from the cell into the courtyard, threw me to the ground, and shocked me with two electric bantoons all over the, the body until I lost consciousness. The torture I saw and witnessed in the camp were beyond imagination. A young woman was tied to a chair with four or five male police guards shocked her on her head, on her private part, until she lost control of her bowel movement. As a result, she couldn't walk for months. And another method they used to torture females was to tie four teeth brushes together with the sharp end outside, and then push this thing inside the female's vagina and twisted, twisted, until they saw blood. And they would also throw females naked in the prison, male prisoner cells to have them gang raped 
repeatedly. And I'll stop here, pause for a minute, and to explain how I ended up in this situation. Back in 1997, I was 21 years old and a university student, maybe like many of you here. And that time, I believed the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, was the savior of China and the only one which is capable of creating a new and beautiful new China. It was forever glorious, forever correct, forever great. I believe it all, as that was what I and every, everyone around me had been taught ever since we were born. So I applied to join the party and was accepted as I was always very obedient and did well in my study. And then in 1992, I gave birth to my daughter and I still remember holding her in my arms and marveling at her beauty and perfection. That was the most happy moment in my life. But later on, I became pregnant again. And that was the first time that I ever encountered the other side of the party. Because in Chi communist China, no one was allowed to have a second child then. So I had no choice but to do a forced abortion and killed my unborn baby. I didn't want to, but had no choice. Because of this forced abortion, and also because of the medical incident, accident I encountered during childbirth, I lost a lot of blood. I encountered two hemorrhage and twice was in very critical condition. And to make things worse, I caught hepatitis C through blood transfusion as they gave me contaminated blood. So, my health was totally ruined after these two episodes. I lied in bed for years without being able to work, to look after my daughter, even to witness the growth of my daughter because I was separate from her, lying in hospital for years. And then on the second day of June 9th, 1997, and the year, one day after the world celebrate the Hong Kong's return to China, I received a set of Falun Gong books from my hometown sent to me by my family. And uh, the books inspired me so much that I decided to practice Falun Gong right away. And the Falun Gong, by the way, is, is an ancient you know, like Qigong practice involves following three principles in your daily life, truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance or forbearance, plus five sets of very gentle exercises, including meditation. So after only one month of daily exercises, I was fully recovered from my illness. All my previous problems, health problems, had gone without a chance. I was 
again full of energy, full of vitality, and full of happiness. I happily return back to work. So, because of its very obvious health and mental benefits, Falun Gong developed very fast in China. Then, within only seven years of since its first introduction to the public, there were more Falun Gong practitioners in China than the Communist Party members. And we have to remember, this is a one-party nation. The party never allowed that some, some such a large group, all of its ideological control, the party would never allow people are believing more in truth, compassion, and forbearance other than the party. So in July 1999, the Communist Party launched a, an overwhelming crackdown against Falun Gong. People were mass arrested, thrown into prison without trial, tortured, murdered, and even killed on demand for their organs. And they were also thrown into labor camps without trial, like me. When the crackdown first started, I couldn't believe this is happening. What, that the party, which is always glorious, always great, always great, would do such a evil thing to its own people. Nor did I ever imagine that this kind of thing would one day happen to myself, also a party member, and you could count me as an elite of the society because I worked for the Development and Research Center of the State Council. It actually is a policy study and a research body for the government, for the State Council. And uh, maybe you are wondering why, why is this happening in such a day and such a time? Why hasn't anybody done anything about it? And the answer, I think, like all the cases in history, when the totalitarian regime wants to legitimize their persecution against their own people, the answer lies in the propaganda. Ever since the crackdown happened, all the state media, state-controlled media, TV, radio, newspapers, bombarded the public with false news report against Falun Gong to demonize Falun Gong and its practitioners. And every terrible lie that was told in history against the persecuted people became a false fake news report on Falun Gong. It was said we would get up in the night, cut open our bellies, murder of children or eat babies. And the worst moment in this propaganda storm was when my seven-year-old daughter screamed at me with so much anger in her eyes and so much bewilderment. I know mom is a good person, but the TV says Falun Gong is banned. I don't know who to believe. And then let's go back to the labor camp after trying to withstand all those unimaginably cruel torture, 
both physically and mentally, for more than six months in the camp. I finally collapsed. I broke down, and I wrote a statement to promise that I would give up practicing Falun Gong. That was the worst moment in my life, with my thoughts being ripped and then taken away. I feel like becoming an empty, empty shell in a human form, a non-human being without thoughts, without a soul, a free will, or human dignity. And what worse is, I was expected to help the police to torture others to prove that I have been reformed or transformed. I can never forget a teenage girl who was sent to the camp one day before I was about to be released. The police ordered me to watch over her to make sure that she didn't fall asleep as sleep deprivation was one of the main methods they used to torture Falun Gong practitioners. I had so much sympathy toward her as I knew too well what she would be forced to go through in the camp. But I couldn't show any sympathy toward her. And only after I finished this last task was I released on the following morning after spending another speed sleepless night in the camp. I was released, but I felt imprisoned than ever. As I was taken to the, from the labor camp directly to the police station, not to my home, and the police told me I was expected to go to the brainwashing centers to continue to be used as an example of reform because they didn't have enough labor camp camps to hold all the Falun Gong practitioners. They sent up many so-called brainwashing centers in hospitals, in schools, in any public facility they could find. I would rather die. So I escaped from my home only five days after my release, no matter how much I wanted to spend the time together with my family, with my daughter, after the long separation. I escaped to the West. And I was much, much luckier than many other fellow Falun Gong practitioners in China. I met an Australian couple who went to China to teach English, and through their help, 
I was able to escape to Australia to seek asylum and was granted refugee in 19, in 20, sorry, in 2003. But the process of my recovery was very, very long and difficult. I tried to regain my thoughts, my soul, my dignity, but there were so many mental and emotional barriers and difficulties to overcome, such as a sense of being not worthy, regrets, remorse, disgrace, shame, and humiliation. But I think ultimately a determination to survive this and to stand up again as a complete human being so that I can help others who are still being held to this day in the prison camps that enabled me to become a complete person again with my own free will and my thoughts and soul. So that's, that was how I was able to finish this book, Witnessing History, One Woman's Fight for Freedom and Falun Gong, and also uh, involved in the production of this movie, Free China, The Courage to Believe. And that's why I'm here again today to tell my story. The world once vowed never again. But very unfortunately, this is happening again and on an unprecedented large scale. Look at Hong Kong. While we were fast asleep last night, the so-called emergency law has been passed and they are banning facial masks now. And the police, this morning, I, on the way here, I just saw a piece of news that a 14-year-old boy was shot by real bullets by the police again. The other day, I watched a video on the internet with a young Hong Kong, young, young Hong Kong man saying he had a wheel in her pocket every time he took to the street to protest or to protect his fellow protesters. And they are asking nothing but what the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, has promised. And I also read another very heart-wrenching story where several moms in Hong Kong donated several thousand dollars to buy masks to their, for their children and other youngsters. They knew very well that sending their children to the streets could result their deaths. But they said, as in our generation, we failed to defend the freedom. This is the least we could do, is to support our children and let them fight. 
Could you imagine how those moms felt when they said and did this? Can we let them fight along? Martin Luther King once said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Exactly because the world leaders and the United States had done nothing, virtually nothing, to stop the genocide of Falun Gong practitioners. Exactly because of, of this, the CCP is able to spread their genocide to Uyghurs, to Tibetans, to Hong Kong people now. The young people in Hong Kong are braving real bullets, tear gas, watermelons every day. They are at the front line between the evil CCP and the free world. And they are resisting the evil and fight for freedom, not only for themselves, but also for us all. If Hong Kong loses, the world will lose. And do you think Hong Kong is the only battlefield? Absolutely not. Before we realized it, this communism specter with all sorts of sinister, disguised, deceptive and non-violent ways has infiltrated the free world. That's why so many politicians are making socialism sound so sweet. And that's why the majority are heard, the majority of young Americans are feeling attracted by socialism ideas. So, Hong Kong, not only Hong Kong has become a war zone, a battlefield, but here in the United States also, there is a battle between America's founding principles and traditional values with the infiltration of communism and often manifested with various opinions trends and ideas of socialism. And that's why, as a survivor and victim of the so-called socialism with Chinese characteristics, I fully understand the seriousness of these battles. And that's why I'm here to continue to tell my story no matter how hard it was every time. And to fight hard. Let us fight with people in Hong Kong day after day, week after week, and month after month until we win. And together, we will win. Thank you. Thank you very much. I 
I do have uh, prepared a PowerPoint uh, with, uh, if we have time, just very quickly go, go through it. By the way, I'm a member of this anti-communism action team in Washington, and through them I was invited to this uh, speech. And also this is the, uh, I think, poster for the movie I just mentioned, Free China, uh, The Courage to Believe. And here are some just some uh, pictures I would like to show so that everyone has a vivid idea what, about what I was talking about. So this one is a group exercise photo before the crackdown on Falun Gong in, in China. So you could see hundreds, uh, hundreds, thousands, and even tens of thousands of Falun Gong practitioners practicing peacefully in the morning in China before the crackdown. And of course, now you could, couldn't see anything of this. Those are only some of the torture uh, pictures, and they are real, and you couldn't see them um, in any of the major, um, I think, media reports. This is a practitioner, Falun Gong practitioner after, uh, I think, before and after she was tortured. And I think the, the one luckiest thing for Hong Kong is Hong Kong still has a little bit of freedom where journalists from all over the world can go there and report what's happening. That's how we are able to look uh, and to see all the uh, terrible images now. But now they are attacking journalists too. A journalist, a female journalist was you know, shot on her face and she lost her right eye just a few days ago. But, but with the persecution of Falun Gong, you couldn't say anything. Uh, virtually nothing you know, got reported because in China, the, the, gov the government, the Communist Party has the power to control all the, all the media and the foreign journalists were not allowed to cover this kind of thing. So these are very, very precious images. Some of them could be, uh, some of Falun Gong practitioners really risk their lives to be able to smuggle those images and uh, videos out. So they secretly recorded those are all people, you know, persecuted nearly to death inside this is one of the very famous totalitarian uh, labor camp called Ma Sanjia in China. This is, I think, another another one. I don't know how to put videos. Um, so these are people forced to making products inside the labor camp. I did some of some of the investigation of. They are making some electronic products in China, and did, I did some investigation. They sold them at 50,000 more, and the price that is 50,000 more than the labor cost in, uh, in China, when some labor camp did pay anything. Some of the labor camp didn't pay anything. So that's why the US economy and the economy of other Western countries got um, hurt by, by, by the, the slave laborers in the camps that I was also forced to make. So that's the last uh, sl slide. Thank you so much.
Um, thank you so much for being here and for telling your story. I know um, everybody here is just so grateful to you and your bravery and your courage um, to tell us about your experience and unfortunately the experience of many, many people um, in China. I want to open things up for Q&A. We've got a couple people with microphones. So if you do want to answer a question, please raise your hand and wait until you have a microphone so that the folks who are watching online can hear you ask your question. Um, I want to kick things off with a question here to start off. I was really struck by the cruelty of the people who were in charge of these camps. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about how people found themselves in that enforcement role? Were they there willingly? Had they um, previously been troublemakers um, that had been reformed, quote unquote? Um, how, how do the enforcers find themselves in that position? Oh, I think that was a very, very long story if we have to uh, answer this question properly. I think inside the communist ideology, a very main element is hatred. So ever since the CCP took power 70 years ago, it has launched all kinds of campaigns. Uh, they, they turned people against one another. They, they in the inside hatred among, amongst the people. And they somehow established, like they glorify the hatred towards our, our enemy. So they have a very famous slogan, I think in 1950s, we treat our, we can treat our enemy uh, like as cold as the, the winter storm, something like that. So people, I think, from the very young age believed that there is nothing wrong with hate our enemies. So that's why in, 2001, when 911 happens, when the tourists targeted America, because America is the main target for the hatred of the CCP followers, mainly, you know, Chinese people applaud for this uh, tourist act. They say, oh, wonderful, we, they deserve that. And, uh, and in, for the case of Falun Gong, as I mentioned, because of the propaganda campaign, they've already successfully established that Falun Gong practitioners were mad, were non-human, they did terrible things, so it is okay to get rid of them. So that's the ideological side of this story. And another practical side of it is they have policies, incentives, they have quotas for the police to achieve. So when I was in Beijing female labor camp, the quota to reform Falun Gong practitioners was 95%. So if the police couldn't uh, achieve their quota, they would either lose their wages, lost their position, get rid of their, uh, get removed from their position. And the police in turn encourage the real hard criminals inside the camp to torture us, to watch over us 24 hours. If these criminals did a good job for the police, they could be released ahead of time. And for people who longed for freedom, one more, I think, day of, you know, really, uh, if they can earn one day to, to be released, uh, ahead of time, they are they they are willing to torture us to death, 
And there were another very funny policy. If a police officer signed my release paper, and within three, and he or she is responsible for me within three years after I was released, which means if within three years I was found to, to be practicing Falun Gong, if I go to Tiananmen to protest against the persecution again, that police officer would lose his, his or her job. And they have another policy, which is if they torture, to torture us to death they, or to, to insanity, they were not held accountable. So they'd rather torture us to death than releasing us unreformed. And to torture uh, them to death and count as suicide has become another tactic they are using against Hong Kongers now. We heard so many uh, cases of people jumping out of the building or they found a uh, yellow floated in, in the sea. But many people seriously doubt they have been they have been suicided. I know this is not a correct English expression, but I couldn't find a correct English expression because such things never happened in China. So in Chinese, we we call we said they have been suicided, which means they have been murdered, and then they, the CCP claim they committed suicide. And another policy is bankrupt toward Falun Gong is bankrupt them financially, destroy them physically, and uh, damage their reputation, something like that. So the whole machinery of a nation has worked several decades towards this goal. And sometimes if we don't understand the CCP, it is because we try to understand it with normal mentality. So for a normal government, I think every government, whether uh, it, it could do it or not, they want to do something good for the people. They want to achieve something so people will elect them next time. But for the CCP, the ultimate goal of its being, of its existence, is to destroy human beings not to do anything good for the CCP. If we understand this, we will understand why they behaved like they did and why things has come to this stage today. Thank you so much for explaining that. We'll open things up to questions from the audience now. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Doug Blair, and I work here at the Heritage Foundation as a communications intern. Um, one of the things that Falun Gong has been relatively effective at is outreach. So Shen Yun and the Epoch Times are both sort of subsidiaries of the Falun Gong movement. Is there anything else that maybe somebody stateside or in the West would be able to do to help either those organizations or help the Falun Gong um, movement get more press and get more attention? Yes, I think yeah, I think everybody as individuals, of course, we can reach out to our representatives, to the journalists we know, to just to report about what you hear uh, today. And also, there are so many things we can do. We can there. There is also the Magnitsky laws, which you know we we should um, punish or you, we should sanction those who are involved 
in the persecution. I know Falun Gong practitioners have submitted some of the names of the people who are involved in this persecution. And also there are some, West, very unfortunately, some Western companies who have helped the CCP to persecute its people. They give them the technology for them to you know, monitor the people. Now, you know, the so-called social credit system and the cameras is establishing everywhere. And the, all the people now, now, I think the latest development is they are now connecting DNA samples of all the male citizens in China. Not only, oh, maybe one year ago, they did this to all the Uyghurs. And the DNA testing sequences, some kind of machine I know, was exported to China through some Western company. And there are so many things we can do. And I think targeting those who are involved in this is, is uh, I think, a very uh, effective uh, way, at least to, to give some, them, them some of the warning signs. If we did do this and froze their assets in the United States, that would really mean something to those people. Hi, my name is Caleb Kistreva. I'm also an intern here at Heritage. Um, I have two questions for you. First of all, thank you so much for coming and your bravery and well, your vulnerability also in sharing your story. It's really impactful. Um, my first question is, you mentioned um, winning in Hong Kong. I'm just wondering what you think that looks like. What does winning look like in Hong Kong? And then also, uh, my experience with the Uyghurs in Hong Kong and a lot of these other human rights violations in China um, are really are well known or familiar to policy people, to people in the political realm, but not to like my friends back home in Colorado. Um, most like of the the citizens of the United States just don't know about this. So, what do you think it would take? to really break through in these, um, with these, with, with like the normal person? I, yes, I think uh, for many people, this situation is so, uh, so, so bad, we can say. And the Chinese Communist Party looks so powerful, at least on the surface. But I think there were two things that gave me confidence. One is when I watched those Hong Kong people, two millions of them took to the street. And every day, every night, they continue to fight. And they, there was a video, I was very moved, of one young man shout, give me freedom or give me death. I think this, I do believe people's spirit cannot be crushed. And I say hope in the unity and the solidarity of, of millions of Hong Kong people. I don't believe the CCP can crush that, no matter how hard they try. And of course, we in the rest of the world need to stand with them, help with them, and to spread the message and I think if enough people have already waken, been woken up and stand with them together, the, the influence will spread um, gradually or maybe very quickly. And another thing I'm optimistic is 
nobody maybe in the outside world knew really how fragile the CCP really is. I think with the ongoing trade war, there many sides uh, has already shown themselves that the Chinese Communist Party's economy is got hurt very badly because they didn't establish their economic model on like normal society on their own innovations or their proper destruct, uh, construction. They relied on steal the technologies from the West and they rely on polluting the environment, slave their own people, and uh, do all sorts of, uh, I think, um, in unfair ways, all sorts of bad things to develop, to maintain a very unhealthy so-called high growth of GDP. And they their legitimacy today because the communism has actually gone bankrupt in China. So their own their only legitimacy legitimacy is rely on the growth of the GDP. If that got hurt, they they were very soon lose the support of the people, and people inside China were not tolerant them any longer. And so everything I think um, we are doing today will contribute uh, to the fight against the evil uh, of the CCP. And so don't be discouraged by how strong on the surface they are. They are very, very weak inside because everything they are doing is against human nature, is against I think the heaven bestowed principles and uh, that kind of thing cannot last long. It is my firm belief. Hi, uh, my name is Aiden. I'm uh, interning at the Fuller Institute here at Heritage. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. Um, and I, I know how difficult that must be. Um, and I guess my question is just how, I have two really, um, what was the indoctrination uh, that the CPP utilizes? I guess, how, what was it like? What, what, what kind of things were they saying and what methods were they using to spread it? And also how much of the Chinese population do you think has been indoctrinated by the CCP? Mm -hmm. Do you have any specific uh, range or just generally? Just generally. Yeah, I think apart from encouraging people to run after money and to boast up about their economic uh, achievement, another major thing they rely on is the nationalism. So they, they say, oh, we must be proud of China. Uh, we, we are, like I said, the only, you know, saver of a new China. And we are the only power, uh, the only uh, party that can lead people, lead the Chinese people towards the world, to conquer the world, and uh, look at our uh, economy. So that's the one of the, I think, the, the only thing left for them to try to indoctrinate the Chinese people. And, uh, and I agree, many, because of the information and tight media control, many people, you know, were deceived uh, by this. And uh, 
I just uh, watched a video of uh, a journalist, of a Western journalist, who want to uh, interview several Chinese students in Australia, and uh, they and he asked those students, "Do you think it's all right for the Chinese government to crack down on Uyghurs?" And they said, "Of course, if they oppose the government, they should be cracked down." And uh, and they said, oh, "How about they uh, they crack down on Hong Kong?" And they said, "Oh, of course, they, we 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 support the government." So the nationalism is the only thing. That's why they spend so much money. I, I wonder which ever of you have saw the, the celebration of the October 1st to display their power and everyone like have to walk like a machine and everyone. It spends them, I don't know how much money and how much time to have everyone walk like machine because they need it to put on a glory face of nationalism to instill this pride in, this, uh, in the Chinese uh, people. So there is a long way for us to go to try to, I think, to spread the universal values that human rights matters more than just being fit. So, so yeah, that's, that's, that is a challenge. But I think uh, if we, all the citizens, uh, worked together and to spread the message on social media in, uh, with every channel we can, I think there are also many people who tried to jump over the line and after they read the true information, out of the control of China, they walk up. They, they. I think they identify with the universal values, the Western values. So, I don't think there is absolutely not help, no hope there. But, but there is a long way to go. I agree. My question is that whether your organization or yourself. Are you only concerned about violation of human rights in China or all over the world? For example, in Australia, they have been committing the many, many years crime against the Aboriginal uh, and also asylum seeker, or in Europe, or against uh, uh, blacks in Africa, even here in this country about have you gone done anything about those issues? Yes, I, I do believe human rights is universal. And uh, no matter where, no matter what, we have to defend them, like the basic rights to have your freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Yes, I do think we should fight for the universal rights. Jennifer, maybe I can ask the last question before we go to lunch. Would you be able to uh, share with us in a general way how you were able to flee communist China to freedom and your family as well. Yes, like I said, I was much luckier in this sense because I had good education, I speak good English. So as soon as I was released, actually I decided inside the camp to already to escape so that I can write a book about my experience. So after I was released, I purposely tried to find Westerners to help because I've read a lot of, although they have information control in China, because I've read a lot of Western novels, literature works, I somehow had established a trust 
with Westerners. I knew they are the ones to seek help. So I tried to get in contact with any Westerners I could, you know, meet during that period of time. So I so I talked to several groups of Westerners, including a professor from Arizona University. She all she also promised to help me, and she did actually tried very very hard to get me an invitation to her university while in her holiday days. Only her invitation came one day after the invitation from the Australian Cup. So I always said, online study English hard. It's it's useful and it can save your life in critical times. So yes, so they are absolutely strangers, but I trusted them with my secrets, with my story, and I told them how dangerous my situation was. You know. You know what? I actually already started writing my book while in China, and every day after I finished writing, I copied them. In those days, we use floppy disk. This, this, this small. I copied them into two different floppy disks and hide them somewhere. Erase all the record in the in my uh, in my hard drive because the police could come at any time. So I knew how dangerous that was, and I was able to. Fully make them fully understand my situation and how urgent I needed to escape China. That's why I got help not only from the Australian Cup but also American professor. So in that case, I was much luckier. And for many ordinary Chinese citizens and my fellow practitioners, they are still trapped in China and could be taken away at any minute. I just want to mention that this film that we watched in the office, we got for $2 on uh, Amazon, and I know the book is on Amazon, Amazon as well. Yes. The book is 06, mm, was that when you wrote it? Is that, yes. But, but the story remains the same. Well, Melanie, you want to wrap up? Um, sure, sure. Um, we just wanted to present you with a small gift, a token of our appreciation. Um, thank you so much for being here. We appreciated hearing from you. and. Hopefully everybody will be able to join us for lunch afterwards as you exit the auditorium. Just head to the left. We Thank have you. a little gift as well. <laughs> this is from the uh, Center for Conservative Women. Every every person needs a good tote bag to put their other gifts in. And our uh, our limited edition coffee mug. Boy, this saying, this applies to you here. Courage is the ladder on which all the other virtues mount. That was Claire Booth Luce. You are a woman of great courage. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Please share my story.